Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Kitty Swink to the show. Kitty is a professional television, film, and stage actor. Screen highlights from her long list of credits include Passage, The Fosters, Crossing Jordan, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and the films The Long Shadow, Patty Hearst, and In the Mood. On stage, she has played off-Broadway and in regional theaters all across the country. I met Kitty through the Antilles Theater Company, where we are both members, and where she currently serves as co-artistic director. She is a champion of the L.A. theater scene, as well as the rights and protections of actors everywhere, having also served as a national vice president of the Screen Actors Guild and on the SAG Pension and Health Trust, where she sat as chair of both the Investment and Benefits Committees. She is a guiding force and friend to many, and I am thrilled to hear her story. Welcome to the show, Kitty. Thank you, Nick. Oh, it's <laughs> it's great to have you. I also really love it when I do, I, I talk about this often, but I have this thing where I'm like, welcome to the show, Kitty. And, it, <laughs> and no one really knows, everyone has a different way of responding to this energy. It definitely changes because we're not in person with each other. There is a kind of game show theme. I just, I love it, but people don't know it's coming a lot of times. <laughs> Kitty, I just had John Apicella on last episode. And John, uh, for those guests who didn't hear it, is another member of the Antius Theater Company. He was actually a founding member. And he spoke about his love for the transformative power of theater, both for the individual and the culture at large. And he was really lamenting that at a moment where theater feels so essential, we can't have it in the way in which it's most powerful, which is live and in person. And I really wanted to ask you, since this is something that you must be thinking about a lot as co-artistic director of a 99-seat theater in Los Angeles, what is Antias facing in this moment? How is it trying to meet the moment? And how should we feel as actors and as audience members about the state of theater in Los Angeles and maybe even in the country? I, I think it's the country, the world. Los Angeles is all I can really address. But I think the loss of theater and music and any kind of performative art is a specific loss at this time. For me personally, what I keep thinking about is that when we first closed the theater on a Thursday night in March, realizing that we were going to shut down our production of Measure for Measure, which was so timely and an event of the world that people needed to talk about afterwards and people needed to experience, even though it was a play that Shakespeare wrote a very long time ago, we all thought, oh, by July, we'll be open. At the very latest, it'll be July. And here we are on the cusp of October, and we're still um, struggling with this. And when I talked to our members, uh, people like you, but also the members of our audience and our donors and our students, the thing that people feel the loss of, not just at Antius, but in theater in general is the sense of community of coming together, of having a shared experience. I think that's, um, you were raised a Catholic. It's very much what going to mass is like and having the experience of, of worshiping together, because I think that's what, even if you're at a silly play, there's a sense of worship for me. And I, I think people miss that. And for Antius particularly, we take seriously the idea that, our family is not just our actors and our our directors and our designers, but also our audience. 
I've worked at a lot of theaters around the country. I've, I've been on stage around the world and I've never been any place where you commune with the audience in quite the same way you do at NTS. I, I know you felt it in the old small space, but we really spent a lot of time talking to our audience and wanting to hear what they have to say and learning from them as they learn from us. Theater is a commutative property. So that's what we're facing. And TIAS particularly is trying to figure out how to go forward in many ways. We're doing radio plays that are going to be released in November because there are Zoom plays everywhere in the world and that's fine. But I always feel a little separated by Zoom. And I think my co-artistic director Bill does too. It's a useful tool and Goodness knows I'm on it all the time right now. But mm. radio, uh, like podcasts, is an extremely intimate experience. So we went to our writer's lab and and asked them about writing some zip code plays, which we had done 10-minute zip code plays on our first experience with the Playwrights Lab years ago in the old space. And so they pitched these ideas about communities, and we picked six of them. And we've hired NTS actors. And Jeff Gardner, who you've worked with on stage, of course. is a brilliant sound designer. He works with LA Theater Works. He designs at theaters all over town. He's, yeah, he's award-winning. He's, he's very... Over and over and over again. I, I can't say enough about Jeff. So he's um, producing the audio and doing all the effects. And that's extraordinary. We're doing these zip code plays. We're doing book clubs. We're trying to keep our community together. We continue to do an academy online. We've been doing master classes with Dakin Matthews. And my husband, Armin Shimmerman, have been doing master classes, and we're going to do some more of those. So people all over the globe can experience what NTS has to offer, which is great. Playwrights Lab is going forward. So we're trying to hold our community together, and we're very lucky that our donors and our members have really stuck by us and helped us survive this difficult time because I don't think a lot of theaters are in as good a shape as we are fiscally, which is, you know, sad to say, something you have to think about when you're running a, a nonprofit arts organization or any arts organization. Well, it's bittersweet, obviously, when you hear it. I have adored being a part of Antius uh, for, for many different reasons, being on stage a couple of times uh, in actual mm-hmm. plays, but also doing staged readings and just the community that it's brought me as far as just like-minded artists and and other artists that are that are of different minds that teach me a lot of things. There's a lot there at Antius, and I'm always comforted when I hear, especially someone like you in a leadership position that's reminding us that it's in a good state. And yet at the same time, of course, what you're also talking about is uh, the fact that not everyone will be able to survive this. And uh, that's very tragic. And it just, it's a tragedy that is unfolding and, and we don't quite know the extent of it still. And that's, harrowing and it's uncomfortable and here's why for me i find it so uncomfortable because at times in our lives when things are difficult um i've survived cancer twice once a very bad kind of cancer a usually unsurvivable kind of cancer and Mm. what kept me going was not just that i had i was lucky enough to have great doctors and my husband was extraordinary but my friends and my family were around me. And I mean my family, like my brothers and my uh, cousins and stuff, but I also mean my theater family and my personal, you know, my, my maid family. And that's what we need in a pandemic or in this time when we're facing such enormous social justice issues or division in the country is we need to come together and be able to hold on to each other and breathe the same air as each other. 
and the loss of theater and the loss of being able to put your arms around a friend and tell them you love them is what's so particularly difficult in a time when, when there's a crisis in World War II, my mother would go to work and see all of her friends, and that made a difference. While mm. my father was living through D plus one and the Battle of the Bulge, I mean, they had community. We have community, but it's virtual, and that's very difficult, I think. Well, Kitty, this is, um, thank you for that. And <laughs> you're exactly right in the spot already where the show needs to be. So I'm going to take you out of it briefly to talk to me about breakfast. And then we're going to go right back into it. <laughs> so tell okay. me, what did you have for breakfast this morning? I had a peach. I had three cups of tea. I'm, a, I'm an Irish tea addict. Oh. And uh, yeah, I'm I I'm stained really my teeth so bad on Irish tea once. I was like, I got to stop drinking it. <laughs> oh, I know. It's really bad for your teeth. The two things that I really like to drink are black tea and red wine. Both terrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you got to pick your poisons. Um, coffee stains my teeth too. I mean, you know, let's be let's yeah. be true. I shovel that into my face also. How was the peach? A peach, I find peaches to be such a temperamental fruit. I feel like you just never know what peach you're going to get. Yeah, but when you get a good peach, it's a wonderful thing. And it this is. morning's was quite quite good. And then I had cottage cheese. So there you go. That's That was my breakfast. Sounds healthy. Sounds clean. Sounds fit and ready for a long, reflective show here, <laughs> Kitty. <laughs> So let's do it. How and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Uh, oh, that's interesting. I, you know, we always said grace. We said uh, before dinner and lunch, and we said prayers, and before we went to bed at night. My father came back from World War II with the very distinct feeling that God would not have let that terrible thing happen, and it became your responsibility as a human being to stand up for justice. Uh, when each of us got to be about 12 or 13, he was an officer who rose through the ranks during World War II because people kept dying. I mean, it wasn't that he was so fabulous. I think it was that, you know, people were dying everywhere. So you kept moving up. Mm. And he had pictures that he had taken of the camp that he had been one of the liberators of. And, and there were men who could not raised themselves off their bunks because they were so, they were too thin to have been marched out of the camp by the Nazis. Wow. And he said, this is what happens if you don't stand up for what you believe in. And so in a funny way, that affected my sense of what God was. My mother was um, a believer, but not a churchgoer. Both my grandmothers were very serious and I have a, a mishmash of Christianity between the two sides of the family. There's Episcopalians, there's Catholics, there's this, there's that. And occasionally my grandmothers would grab me. But I also was free to go explore what my friends' families did. Um, one of my best friends as a child, Marty Kramer, her family introduced me to Jewish holidays. And interestingly, I don't think it has anything to do with Marty Kramer. I married a guy who's Jewish. So, <laughs> and Is then, your husband a practice? Does he practice? He is of Jewish the way I'm Christian. It's cultural. Mm. He was very religious until after his bar mitzvah. He was raised in a very religious family. His mother and his grandmother were both very religious. His father, not particularly, his father had been a Zionist who survived the war because he had walked from Poland to Jerusalem before the war, and most of his brothers and sisters were killed wow. in the camps. Yeah. So his father was not particularly religious, uh, culturally very 
uh, Jewish, mm-hmm. but not particularly religious. And so Armin left being a practicing, a seriously practicing Jew when he he saw his mother, who was a single mother and was working many jobs to keep her two little boys going and pay for them to go to Hebrew school and and make sure that they had clothes and shoes on their feet and food in their bellies. And some men from the building fund during the high holidays, which we are in the middle of right now, was pressuring her to give them more money, which she didn't have. And she was already donating her time to be a bookkeeper for the temple. And so Armin said, I'm I'm sort of done with organized religion, Mm. which is too bad. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, they have buildings they have to pay for too. But I I think many of us have that sort of feeling about organized religion. I, I don't hold anything against it. I'm actually quite fond of going into churches all over Europe and lighting a candle and saying um, a prayer. Uh, I've been known to say the odd Our Father and Hail Mary, but I wouldn't say I was religious, yeah. So one thing that feels a a little um, cloaked for me still is your father served in the war, saw (laughs) a great deal of atrocity. He was clearly on the front lines of this. And when he came home, he started a family, right? You didn't, none of the family of your nuclear family right. had been started before, right? Right. I'm the baby of the family. You're yeah. the baby. But you're still saying grace and things. It, you, the story seems to be that he he lost faith in a kind of all-powerful God, and yet at the same time, culturally felt comfortable continuing having prayers in the household and things, maybe just because it felt right. It wasn't necessarily that your father was devout. My father was definitely not devout. My father was definitely not devout. My mother was not really devout either, but she was, she believed. She was a believer. Mm. Um, she was a believer. And both my grandmothers were believers. I think probably my father's father was a believer. Um, I don't know about my mother's father particularly. We lived in a neighborhood where, you know, a lot of the guys went to Jesuit high school. Right. There was a lot of religion around me, but I don't think I was raised. I think I grew up worshiping at the altar of art and nature, I would say, and and yet still have some sort of weird smattering of multicultural religiosity, if that makes sense. The second cancer I had was pancreatic cancer, and they they take a lot of things out when they operate on you. And I, <laughs> so they took a half my stomach and a couple feet of my intestines and my gallbladder and half my pancreas and a, my my I know and a bunch of um, <laughs> bunch of uh, uh, lymph nodes. So that said, I worked a lot with this wonderful man who does shinshin shitsu and and really helped me through chemo and radiation and I still check in with a lot and one of the things he said is you know all those body parts that are missing still have some something is still functioning for them some part of your body is still doing the work they used to do so I think you should thank them every night so still 16 years later I go to sleep at night and I um say thank you pancreas thank you stomach thank you I have a litany of, and and then I thank my 
my late dog that sat next to my bed through my entire recovery process. And I say most especially thank you, Armin, who's my husband. But I and I and I say and God bless so and so and God bless so and so anybody who's having a particularly trying time in the moment um, or has just passed. I said, God bless Ruth Bader Ginsburg the other night. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I do. So there is a, I would say, spirituality without being a dogmatic religious person in any way. Yeah. We're going to take our first break right here, Kitty. It's a little early, but okay. we'll leave ourselves a little time for the latter segments. Okay. We'll be back in a minute. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. All right, everybody, we're back with Kitty and... I was telling her off mic, what a lovely synthesis of her early childhood that was. It was very helpful to me as an editor, and uh, I really appreciate that. But we didn't talk much about your mom, and I wanted to hear more about her influence on your life. I have to say my mother was an enormous influence, and I didn't really realize it until I got to my 20s and became close friends with her, because a mother-daughter relationship can be fraught when you're an adolescent, but she was extraordinary. She taught me many things. Uh, the first of which is the love of a book that you could go any place inside the pages of a novel and how important it was to read and open your mind. And for instance, in her seventies, she would, she was a great walker and she would walk to the library, which was a couple miles away every day and get a book and walk home and read it. And if it was a, you know, a difficult book, she'd maybe take a couple of days, but she decided in her seventies to reread all of Joseph Conrad. So mm. <laughs> I think you can see that my sort of heady sense of the world comes heavily from my mother. My father was not a big reader, particularly. He was a lawyer, but he read so much for work that he didn't want to really do that in his life. But she was curious and fascinated, and her curiosity infected me in a very specific and deep way. But also, I had this memory of being six or seven years old outside of Kino's, which was the grocery store we went to. And it was Christmas time, and every day, if we'd leave Kino's, she would put money in the Salvation Army or whatever it was, the bell ringer mm-hmm. outside the grocery store. And one day I said to her, why do you do it every time? And she said, because we're luckier than most people, and it is your responsibility to take care of people who are not as lucky as you are. Mm-hmm. And, um, okay, I'm getting I'm getting teary about my mom. Mm-hmm. She was very 
you know, she was a real, she was kind of a smart ass. She was, she could cut you dead with a comment if she wanted to, but she was so generous down to her toenails. It was incredible. And I, um, I also have memories of her talking about, okay, here I go. Her talking about during the depression, how both her, my, she and my dad knew each other from childhood. Um, their mothers would feed people off their back porches you know, the, the people, the homeless people would mark your back gate and they would come to the back door. And my grandmother's out of their garden or the fact that my grandfather's had jobs during a time when so few people did. I think that's why I um, volunteered with the Feminist Majority Foundation for years when I was younger. It's why I um, believe in unionism. It's why I, I think I probably would have had a more interesting acting career if I could have focused on that, but I'm always trying to find other ways to look at things and expand my mind. And so I would, I, I always have a cause. I'm always trying to move the world forward and maybe I'm not very good at it, but I do try. And it's because of my mom. It's beautiful, Kitty. I, I want to ask one thing. Did you say the homeless people would mark your doors? They would mark the back gate, yeah. When you say mark, they would mark it in that this was a place that they could get food? Yes, yeah. That is extraordinary. So I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and my my parents both grew up on the east side. I grew up on the west side, but on the east side, there's a big sort of gully area where the main freeway that goes from downtown out to, like, the airport, the gully was um, a Hooverville, I think is what they called it in those days, for a giant homeless encampment. So they would come up out of the gully towards my grandparents' neighborhood, which was a nice middle-class neighborhood. You know, they didn't live that far apart. My parents went to the same grade school and high school. And they, and I'm sure they did that all over the country. You hear a lot about it of the, the people who came out of the Dust Bowl and came towards California. There were ways that hobos would mark buildings. Hobos, that's such a funny old-fashioned right. word. For well, your, your brain is in the old-fashioned place right now. Yeah, but for the terrible thing of homelessness and they would you know don't go there these people will call the police on you there was a whole series of things ways that these people would mark um the back entrances to houses and they would help the next person that was coming down the line my grandfather ran a mortuary <laughs> there's a jury job my father's wow. father and he kept everybody working but sometimes he would take chickens for uh burial or somebody would come in and prune the gardens and the, the, you know, people who could pay could pay, but people who couldn't pay with money would pay other ways. And that's how they, I think it was a much different ethic in the American psyche at that time, I think, than what we have now. Uh, you know, God knows I use Amazon, but Jeff Bezos could pay every single one of his employees $105,000. He could write them all a check for the profit he's made since the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't have any trouble with people having a lot of money. I have a lot of trouble with people not sharing. That's what I have trouble with. Mm. During the AIDS crisis, Armin was, after we were here, uh, he was doing a play down at the taper and I used to meet him on Wednesdays and Saturdays between shows for dinner and I would order extra food and there was this guy that I got to know that would be outside what, you know, where the offices are for the, across from the Amundsen. Yeah. And 
there was a guy who was always be sitting there and it was clear he had AIDS. I, I had seen enough people dying of AIDS that I knew that that was, and I would get to talk to him and I would go into the itchy foot cafe with Armin or wherever I would go. And then I would bring him whatever was left over from my meal and feed him because he was hungry. And I remember having a conversation with him one night after Armin left. He'd been a lawyer. He got AIDS. They threw him off of his insurance and he, his family didn't want to talk to him because he was gay and he ended up homeless on the streets of downtown LA. He'd been a lawyer. So I just think it's incumbent. uh, We hear a lot about Christianity being uh, anti this and anti that and anti abortion. But what I remember Jesus talking about was um, taking care of people that had less than you did and welcoming strangers and um, judge not lest thou be judged. And here I am judging those people who are judging, so I shouldn't do that either. But mm-hmm. that's, you know, I'm, I'm hardly a saint and I have a very bad, <laughs> I have a very bad temper, <laughs> but I, I have a very bad temper. But I I think that's what my mom gave me was this the desire to be curious all the time, because I think that's what saves your soul in a funny way is to be open and curious because you keep growing if you do that. And the other is to be generous. Mm. Yeah. Well, that sounds right. I definitely, I definitely can empathize with that as being a guiding framework and something I struggle to live up to, but I, you know, I definitely, that resonates. That's beautiful. Do you mind telling me about, you know, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to make you cry, Kitty, but like, <laughs> can you tell me about, you know, what, what was the journey of, here's the real truth. I want to know about your cancer and I want to know about how that folded in with probably what was the end of the life of your parents. I don't know where that falls on the chronology of your life. And, and in my mind, it feels like it could line up in some really powerful ways. And I'm just curious to know how that was for you. Uh, <laughs> uh so, um, Actually, that probably won't make me cry. So the first time I had cancer, I had a very, at 39, I had a very mild case of breast cancer. Did you say 39? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, very mild. And I was lucky because, you know, we had really good health insurance. Thank you, Screen Actors Guild. Um, Yeah. And I had a really good support system and my mom flew down. Uh, we were, I had surgery the week before we moved from our old house into the house we have lived in ever since. Thank you, Star Trek, for the house that I live in. And um, Mm -hmm. so my mom was here and my mother-in-law was here. So while we were moving, our friends helped us because I was kind of laid up. And my my mother and my mother-in-law put our kitchen away, which has to be like the nicest thing anybody ever did for me. So that that was pretty great because that's such a hard job when you move. Yeah, <laughs> I know you know. I, I do, I do. <laughs> it's a terrible job. I hate that job. And so my mom was there for that, and that was great. But at the end of her life, which was my mom died December 30th, 2001. Unfortunately, she got to see the World Trade Center's fall. Oh. Um, that was... She lived right in that time. Yeah. So that was difficult, and she was my mother until the last two days of her life, except she had emphysema that was very bad. And so, and uh, <laughs> she would sit and 
um, pat her legs because she really hated being physically inactive and go, isn't this the shits? That's what she would say. And I go, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She would just Um, sit there and say, isn't this the shits? Yeah. Oh God, that's funny. I love that. Just great. And my father was beginning to show signs of Alzheimer's and was having difficulty sort of managing everything. He had retired at that point. And um, so I was going back and forth a lot. It was uh, hard, although I'm really glad I got to spend a lot of time with her. I would talk to her every day and, and uh, I, I, I spent a lot of time. And when we went up, we drove up before Christmas that year. And right before I left, I got a job doing a show called Becker, being a guest star in a show called Becker, mm. about a woman whose father was dying. Mm. Uh, Tom Poston was playing my dad. He was the, I was the second guest star. He was the guest star. And, um, and I knew Tom a little through some friends. And I said to my mom, I'd gotten this job. And she said, if I don't make it, you have to go back and do this job because I really love that show. Hmm. I said, okay. Hmm. So that was that, that was not my most successful guest star spot, but I did it. So the great thing about this is my oldest niece, Elizabeth, who is like a 40-something version of my mom in many ways, was there uh, when we got there. And the night, Christmas Eve night, she and my mom stayed up all night. Elizabeth woke up in the middle of the night. My mom was had gotten herself out of bed and wheeled herself out in a wheelchair to the family room and was sitting there and Elizabeth got up and they spent all night talking. And then my dad and Armin got up in the morning and drove Elizabeth to the airport. So mom spent all that time with Elizabeth, which was great. And when my dad, and she had given my mom a five pound box of seeds, my mother loved candy. Mm. And um, Nick knows about this about me, but those of you who don't know me, I, I'm pretty skinny. So my mother made me look like a moose, <laughs> but she could eat like nobody you ever saw in your life. She was just like the most incredible eater. So my dad and Armin got home about nine o'clock in the morning on Christmas morning. And she said, uh, <laughs> pour me an old fashioned. Now my mother never had a drink before five o'clock, but she had, she, we poured her an old fashioned and she opened the box of seeds and she spent Christmas day having old fashions playing backgammon or, um, cribbage with us and I think my dad and Armin and I maybe had six pieces all together and my mother ate the rest of it and then she knew she was done and she said I'm going to go to bed now and uh, we took turns laying in bed with her for the next few days until she passed so she uh, went into a coma the day before she died and that evening I was sitting um, next to her and my dad came to the door of the bedroom and said, I'm going to go to Taco Bell and get us some dinner. Do you want something? Mm. And I said, get me, get me a couple of um, chicken tacos, no cheese, dad. And he said, okay. He said, I don't think your mom will want anything. Now she'd been non-compassmentous all day. And she sat up. These are my mother's last words. She sat up. She looked at my father. She said, shut up, Don, get me a taco. And she laid back down. Are you kidding me? I- not this is one of my favorite stories (laughs) this is amazing okay keep going (laughs) she was not gonna not be part of the day wow i know so the next so my brothers are not there yet and my brother steve uh is coming in the next day and my brother don's coming in the day after that because you know it's christmas time it's hard to get a flight and unfortunately for my brother don he never 
he never made it. But my brother Steve's flight was late and it kept getting later. And I kept, I was sitting next to mom going, he's late, but he's coming. He's late, but he's coming. He's late, but he's coming. And, um, Finally, my dad and Armin called from the airport and said, he's here. We've got him. We're on our way home. And so I kept saying, just hang on, mom, just hang on. She was conked, you know, she was completely conked out, but I I thought she could hear me. And Steve got there and I said, I'm going to give you some time with her. And I left and he talked to her for about 15 minutes. And then he came out and got all of us and uh, Armin and I and dad went into the bedroom and the four of us were holding on to her and she took her last breath wow so we had the honor of being with her that was pretty great that is so powerful yeah it was pretty great but she wanted to be part of the party until she couldn't be part of the party wow yeah was she always like that was she always last one at the party or love to throw them or was that always like was that her vibe um yeah i mean i think she liked a good party she loved a good party but i think it was as much as she knew it was time she wanted to be and i think this also has affected me she wanted while she was alive she wanted to be alive she wanted to do whatever she could. She wanted to take in whatever she could take in. She wanted to learn what she could learn and she wanted to pass on whatever she could pass on. So shut up, Don, get me a taco. Seems Mm. like kind of the perfect last words from my mother. That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that story. Mm -hmm. That's great. Mm -hmm. Katie, we're going to jump to the second break right now. We're going to get to have a longer third section, but I uh, will say goodbye for a moment and then we'll be back in a minute. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners and it means a lot to me because I read them and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everybody, we're back with our final segment with Kitty. And Kitty, you you spoke so compellingly about your mother throughout that second section. And it's so humorous and so wonderfully real hearing about her last moments, so powerful and yet so wonderfully just human, you know, shut up, Don, get me a taco. I mean, that is an amazing <laughs> thing to have be your final words. But what I want to ask you first is, where does that leave you? What are some of the first realizations that come to you as you begin your, you could say, the second half of your life now in the wake of losing your mother? Oh, that's that's a big question. That's a tough question. Um, it was hard to lose the anchor sort of to my life in a funny way. And after the home came to take my mom away we sat down to my dad and Armin and my brother Steve and I sat down to dinner and after dinner my dad got up and said I'm going to go to bed and he he said will you put your mom to bed and I said daddy she's gone 
and this horrible look came over his face and he had, it, it was like he went from having the beginning of Alzheimer's to falling off a cliff. Wow. You know, I, I think there's people whose children are the most important things to them. And there's people whose career is the most important thing to him. And the thing that my father loved in the world more than anything else was my mom. And he just didn't know how to look at the world without her. So that, that became a huge anchor in my life, trying to help him and deal with that. And it was wow. really, that was very difficult. The kind of, jump forward to a year or later, I realized he, he could not really take care of his own affairs anymore, but he didn't need to live in a home at that point. And so at that point, you know, we got his driver's license taken away, but he wouldn't stop driving and I couldn't sell his car and blah, blah, blah. And I sued to become my father's guardian, which is really, uh, that's really hard. My father was a a litigator. He was whip smart. He then became a judge. He was, you know, he was, he wasn't a permanent seat, but he would sit pro tem for long periods of time because he loved that and he didn't want to work as hard as being a full-time lawyer at that point. And, and then he finally retired. And so it was very difficult. And I, when I sued to become his, his uh, guardian at that, and my brothers backed my decision to do that. At that point, I got sick in the middle of that. I got pancreatic cancer and wow. I'm in the hospital for a long period of time and all this stuff is going on and uh, and I can't take care of him. And we had to get a court-appointed guardian and my brothers had to go to court against my father and I had hired oh my gosh, a man to be his attorney who had been a junior partner of his in his law firm. And and, uh, you know, he was, my brother said that, that Ron was crying in court and my brothers are crying and my father, you know, was, so, um, but the good part about this story is when we did then have to eventually move him into an, cause he would not move to California where I could keep an eye on him. So we had to eventually move him into a really lovely place in Oregon, this Alzheimer's clinic. And I would call him every day. I would fly up and see him about once a month, but I would call him every day. And at that point he was, he was very upset. My father liked a cocktail. So he, he was very upset that this place, this hotel he was staying at didn't have a liquor license. Mm. So I would go up and I would buy a couple of cases of non-alcoholic beer and give him the, non you know, so they would serve him then. He'd go, they, they only have beer and wine. I don't like wine, but they have beer is okay. So mm. <laughs> that was fine. But every day when I would call him, he'd say, your mom and I, he'd talk to Armin and I, and he'd go, your mom and I just came back from Mexico. We were hang gliding and blah, blah, blah. He wow. would tell these wonderful stories about my mom. And Armin said, isn't this great? He doesn't have to get on an airplane and he's taking a great vacation to, to Mexico or or wow. uh, or to Hawaii or to wherever. And he's with the love of his life all the time. Wow, that is beautiful. That was like pretty great because there were also moments when I would go visit him and I'd take him out to, to get him an ice cream cone or something I'd in my rental car where he would have moments where he would be absolutely aware that who he was now and who he had been. And that was, ter I think that's the real terror of Alzheimer's is that there's these flashes of recognition or there were with my dad that were terrible. And then he would go back and find this sort of wonderful, happy place. And by the time I was able to travel again, which took a long time from after my surgery, and I didn't want to get on an airplane while I was in chemo because I was, I didn't want to 
exposed to germs. So, uh, cause I was neutropenic most of the time and I had many white blood cells. So, hmm. but after that, when I could go visit my dad, we would have these little mini vacations. He loved sweets almost as much as he loved having a bourbon. So there you go. <laughs> God, your family sounds fun. <laughs> Kitty, how close were you during your pancreatic cancer to not winning that challenge or to not, to not getting the cancer to subside. I've, I've talked to uh, some friends that they don't particularly like the winning, losing battle with cancer uh, as a way of describing it, but how close was it at moments for you? You know, I'm, I'm quite sure it was really close, but I, except for I had a couple of very dark nights of the soul. I would be lying if I didn't say that, but I didn't, I chose at some point that I, that I wasn't going to even look at it that way Hmm. with that cancer. I just wasn't, Armin said that, so this Whipple is what the surgery is that they did to me and Armin, and it can take anywhere from like five, at that time it's improved since then. It can take from five to 10 hours. And in those days, you know, a, a huge proportion of people just died on the table. But if you don't have the surgery, you're certainly not going to make it. Hmm. So Armin said after about five and a half hours, okay, my surgeon has the best name of any surgeon you've ever heard. Moses Phallus. <laughs> I know. And I love Mo. Mo Phallus. I mean, can you imagine somebody named their kid that? Give me Mo Phallus. Give me yeah, Mo I mean, Phallus. I mean, it's like the worst name ever. He's a great guy. I'm very fond of Mo. So I love it. Oh, this is good. I know. So he, uh, <laughs> I know. So when I get taken into the emergency room, Okay, this was a bad day. I, I'm suing my father, and a friend of mine's son has emulated himself in his grandfather's car, and I'm, I haven't been feeling well, and I go to the funeral, and I come home from, and I had seen the doctor the Friday before because <laughs> it was bad, and um, while we were at the, the wake after the funeral, the doctor had called the house and said, call me back. When I got home, the office had closed. And she said, you've got to call me right away. And I called. And I got the doctor on call. And the doctor said, well, I don't see anything here. And about an hour later, my internist, Alice Cruz, calls and says, um, you've got to go to the hospital right now. Your kidneys and your liver are shutting down. Oh, my God. I said, what? She said, you've you got, go, you got to go to Cedars right now. And I said, I can go to St. Joe's. It's right here. And she said, no, you've got to go to Cedars. I'm going to call ahead. They'll be expecting you. I'll call Mo so he'll come in first thing in the morning. So this is like we get to Cedars at 11 o'clock at night. We sit there for two hours, during which I turn bright yellow. Oh. And then they take me into emergency. And Mo comes in and looks at me and says, okay, we're friends, but right now we're not going to be friends. We're going to be doctor and patient, and we're going to get this taken care of. And I just knew I was being taken care of. And I had Armin. And so I'm on this odyssey for 17 days in the oh. hospital, and then I come home. Oh. Um, my, my favorite is they kept, they postponed my surgery a couple of times. And the day they did my surgery, Armin and I are walking with my IV pole around the halls of the eighth floor of Cedars. And we passed these two residents and we heard one resident say to the other residents, so I hear Phallus's Whipple got canceled again. And I whipped her <laughs> and went, what? It's like, as I said, I have a bad temper and I go, what? I'm down to like a hundred and 15 pounds at this point because I've been on an IV for 10 days and I haven't been feeling well for a while. 
And uh, he said, are you Moses? Are you Phallus's Whipple? And I said, yes, I'm Phallus's Whipple. And by the time we got back to our room, they came to prep me for surgery. They fixed it. So wow. I know. So anyways, I come home and I had a couple of really, really bad days. And then, and I met with my um, oncologist, who's still my oncologist. I I'm very fond of him. His name's Bob Decker. If anybody needs a great oncologist, he's genius and a lovely human being. And people say, you have to go see this guy at UCLA who's really famous. And we move heaven and earth. And I go see this guy at UCLA. And he comes in to meet uh, Armin and I. And he proceeds to tell me that I probably have it because I had been a smoker in my late teens and early 20s. And that uh, I had had a bad surgeon and blah, 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 blah. And I was probably going to die. I'm not going to say this guy's name. And I looked at Irma and I said, we're not staying here. I don't want anybody who's not on my team who wants to win. And we got up. I mean, I could, uh, I was hunched over. I looked like, you know, um, on laughing, there was a, a part of a guy who walked hunched over all the time, this little man. And that's what I looked like. Or I looked like uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that kind of hunched over walk. Yeah. And, and we left. And from that day forward, I said, I'm just, I'm going to live. That's what I'm going to do. We're going to get through this. And I was lucky. I mean, I, they caught it. I was operable. Uh, I was way younger than most people. I was only 49. I was extremely fit. I had um, been training for a marathon a few months before. I mean, I was really fit. So they could do things to me they, sooner than they could to a lot of people. I I started chemo two weeks after my surgery. That's really unusual with that surgery. I, I, and I had this community of people, my friends, uh, Nancy Lee and Maggie and Tina and Dinah, who got in the shower. The first time they let me take a shower at Cedars, undressed and took me into the shower and washed my hair for me. I mean, it was incredible. And my friend Tess and and Armin, 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 and Larry Pressman, who yeah. you know and love, yeah. whose whose wife Lana uh, struggled for years and years and years with MS, and took it upon himself to take care of Armin while everybody else was taking care of me, and that may have been the biggest gift of all oh. what Larry did. So I just didn't think. Now, do I know that I would fight this hard again at this point? I don't know. I don't know that I would do it again, but at that point I was only 49 and I was just not going to, I was just not going to die. It just was not an option. Is that something you have to worry about? Like with any cancer, are you always bracing yourself for the next three month checkup I, or know, six month checkup or whatever it is? Well, I'm down to a year now, but I had it at 39 and I had it at 49. And when I got to 59 and I didn't get it and I hit my 60th birthday, I was like, woohoo! Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's big. That's what a win. Wow. Yeah, that's fantastic. So that's so it really was in a funny way. It uh you and I've talked about this. Living in the moment is so important. And Joseph Hurt, who I worked with, who I talked about doing Shinshin Shitsu, really helped me live in the moment. And I really tried to do that. And I about Six months after my surgery, I started having these terrible nightmares where people were like eviscerating me. And he said, it's because even though you were asleep while they did that, you know, they were laying your guts on the table, mm. your body still took the trauma in. So he sort of regressed me through the surgery and then I could let go of it. It was, I just had the best 
team of friends and and uh, doctors and people that helped me heal in the world. I just am the luckiest person ever. And then Larry Pressman once again asked me if I would talk to Charlotte Ray. She had been diagnosed at 80 something, 82 maybe with pancreatic cancer. And she became, even though she was a little bit younger than my mother, she became my grandmother sort of. And we would uh, she survived it. She lived to be, uh, I, I threw her 92nd birthday party with wow. um, Larry and John Iacovelli. And then um, she kind of went downhill after that. But for those of you who've ever seen Facts of Life, she was the the den mother, the house mother. And Charlotte, by the end of her life, was maybe four nine. Mm. And I'm quite tall. And we would go speak at these um, pancreatic cancer rallies. And I would like carry an apple box in the back of my car. And she'd get up on the apple box and barely see over the podium. And it was a marriage made in heaven. She became my bubby and I. So that was a gift that pancreatic cancer gave me. And I feel like it's my job to help people survive or if they're not going to survive to live uh as much life as they can while they're with us. I think that is extraordinary. It honestly, it, it, it preempted the question, which was what do you take, (laughs) what do you take out of this? And I guess, what do you think you hold now inside, whether it's a, a piece of knowledge of insight, or is it just a sense of calm? in the face of this, but what is it that you think you have access to now through that experience that maybe the average person that hasn't faced some of these experiences doesn't have and why it predisposes you to being this point person that you see it as not only something that you want to do, but a responsibility to some extent to others. Um, you know, I wish I had calm generally. I'm, I'm very calm around illness in a funny way. I am extremely not calm around politics or social justice or, you know, you should hear me scream at the TV set. It's, it's something, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> it's, I like these asides about your temper and your, and your political screaming. And I like uh, it. I like yeah. it. I'm going to jump back to the very beginning of our conversation. One of the things that pandemic has allowed us to do at NTS is really focus and change how we look at equity and inclusion and being an anti-racist theater and working towards that goal. And I have to say that's been a gift that the pandemic gave to us. Mm -hmm. I feel the same gratitude for that aspect of what this time has done. Yeah, I've been able to exercise that in a, crea- in a creative sense uh, through mm-hmm. this podcast. I've gotten to have lots of conversations with people that have educated me and yeah. I've, I've been open in ways and opened in ways that yes. were absolutely critical and necessary. And it's been um, overwhelming at times to be enlightened yes. to some things, but it's, I do know that this is an important part of what Antius's mission is right now. And uh, I think it's very cool. Thank you. I think it's very cool too, because I, you know, I am completely guilty of not living up to being an anti-racist. I, I was very involved in feminist politics. Uh, Justice Ginsburg has been a a voice for me since I was a very young woman. So 
that I was pretty smart about, but not about this. So, mm. and, and I was very smart about gay rights. I lost so many friends in the early days of AIDS in New York and here. And yet I, I didn't, as much as I thought I was an anti-racist, I was not. And this has been a, a great gift. Now, as to cancer, I am sort of oddly calm. We have, as I said to you earlier in our private conversation, we have lost a lot of a lot of friends this year, many of them to cancer. And one of the great actors of the American theater and in film and television was a dear friend of ours. And I'm so lucky that he was part of my life. And we lost him this year, uh, Rene Aubergenois. And mm. Rene took his time with cancer. It was not dark. He lived exactly the way he wanted. He spent a lot of time creating art and with his kids and his grandchildren. And um, he really, I hope I can be as generous and as selfish as he was mm. in the process of dying. Because he was both of those things. Uh, selfish in a very good way and generous in a very good way. It was extraordinary. And I, I think I have a little bit of that because of my having so early faced this. Nothing like people who've had childhood cancers, and I know a lot of them, but it's a gift. And around those issues, after I have my initial, oh my God, freak out, then I can get quite calm about it. And, um, and I really do. People call and say, is it okay if I have someone call you or... Uh, can can you talk to so-and-so or will you meet them for coffee? And I always say yes. Mm. I always make the time because people made time for me. Did your executive work in the union and obviously now as a co-artistic director, but you've been in kind of a leadership position alongside your husband, Armin, in the theater for a long time in different capacities. But mm -hmm. did that stuff primarily start after your second cancer or was that stuff that you started doing before? And I ask, I think, partly because I want to know what priorities you started to put in your life after you faced cancer so seriously the second time. I was not actually a member of Antius until after my second hmm. cancer. I'd done a couple of readings for them in the old, old space. Right. But I was asked to join. The first play I did after the second cancer was at the Matrix, it was an Irish play called Bold Girls. I weighed 95 when we started rehearsal. Wow. I was 5'10". <laughs> um, it was it's like a little cadaverous. It's a little, I look at the pictures on the wall of the Matrix and I go, oh, please, God, Joe, take those down. <laughs> but then shortly after that, Jeannie Hackett asked me to do a reading at NTS and I did. And Armin was already a member and I became a member. And then, I, you know, I have a, because I'd done political action for so many years, I was, I was kind of good at fundraising and that was sort of how I got roped into leadership. And, but I didn't, I don't think I was that active until a few years later. And when I stepped down from the pension and health trust, which is a huge job, I stepped down from the pension and health trust probably six or seven years ago, I haven't been a board member of Screen Actors Guild for over 20 years, probably 21 years. But I stepped down from the Pension and Health Trust because I thought we have a theater to build and I can help build it. And 
that was the last couple of years we were in the old space where I first met you. And now I'm going to tell the story about Nick oh. because it also includes one of my mentors, Joe Ruskin. Wow. Who played grandpa in, in You Can't Take It With You. Absolutely. Alongside Larry Pressman. It was, the two of Along- them shared the role. So right, exactly. That, and yeah. then Ned Schmidt came in. Yes, and, that's um, that's right, of course, because Larry right. was Larry was uh, Larry got ill. Yeah. So Joe was what, my mentor uh, first as a board member of Screen Actors Guild, and then as a trustee for a, a long time. And I remember coming into the theater while you guys were doing a show. I think I'd done the pre-show speech, and I was I was walking through the old library, which was sort of the green room at that point, and you were just like sucking up Joe's stories about World War II, about being on a ship in World War II. Yes. And it was so vivid in my brain that you were honoring this extraordinary, lovely, extraordinary man who cared so much about the lives of actors and actors and people and what it was to, to be a social activist and who he was as a person. You were so there to hear the history that he could tell you firsthand. And that's when I thought, that's a great kid. I like that guy. Oh, that is such a, a heartwarming and I've got chills. That's such a lovely <laughs> memory. Um, I went to Joe, Joe Ruskin's funeral. Um, mm-hmm. and, Which I spoke at. Yes. And I actually took down that lovely poem that his daughter read called The Actor's Kid uh, or An Actor's Kid. I actually wrote that. I took that from the, I don't know, it must have been written as well in the, in the paperwork. In the program. In the program. Yeah. That's a really beautiful memory. And, 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 you know, it speaks to why I'm sitting here loving listening to your story. And, and I, I did love that very much. And I, I've... And to meet someone like him that, uh, so I lost all of my grandparents basically very young, except my grandmother who, as much as I loved her, uh, she was a sourpuss and she didn't <laughs> quite speak glowingly about my grandfather who I I think I would have adored. And my grandfather fought in World War II and, mm. you know, died, you know, he all of his bones broken, got caught in a tunnel, worked for the railroad in Nebraska. Uh- and smoked three packs a day and died at 59, you know? Um, and whenever I can meet someone like Joe who was so eloquent and charming and uh, had so many stories to share and could share them in a way that, were, although sad uh, about the situation, could was able to have the grace to be able to talk about war in a way that was, you know, that he could share it. And... Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it's fun to have you bring that memory back to me. I appreciate that. And I think oh. sometimes when I get to meet people like that, I get to, it's a way that I get to kind of access getting to talk to a grandfather I never got to talk to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's how I felt about Charlotte. That's that's great. Yeah. Kitty, what a beautiful story. <laughs> <laughs> I just loved getting to hear all these stories. I, I, um... I, I suppose I want to ask you if there's any final thought you have. I feel like you've tied up so many beautiful things, but I just want to ask you, does this leave you in a place right now where you are, where you have an impulse to say any one thing? It could be another anecdote. It could be another, 
another closing thought on anything or just something that this has brought back to you, or you don't have to say anything at all, but I just wanted to give you that opportunity. Wow. That's a big, that's an oddly big question. Oh, that's so hard. I, I would say that you taught me a lesson today and that that's listening is such a gift to be able to listen. I talk too much. I could listen to you all day Mm. and that listening is a gift. So thank you for listening to me and I will try and pass it on. And I would say to everybody that listens to the podcast, ask people their stories and listen to them. I would say that art changes lives because when people see art or create art or are allowed to be listened to, that's what I, when I think about the young men and women in our arts education program and you see that for the first time they feel that somebody heard them and what it does for their self-esteem it makes me feel like there's hope for the world at a time right now when I think there's so many things to be distressed about so read be curious listen to music whatever it is and let other people make things and appreciate them And the last thing I would say is hold on to your friends because that's what we've got. Mm -hmm. That's what we have. Kitty, thank you so much for sharing these really beautiful stories. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Nick. All right, everyone, and thank you all for listening. An Actor's Kid by Alicia Ruskin. This poem was read by Alicia at the memorial service for her late father, the actor Joe Ruskin. It's different being an actor's kid. Our dads had jobs as others did, but seldom did my playmates see their father's faces on TV or witness, as if it were fact, his murder in the final act. Though never cast as cherubim, the threat more likely came from him. An actor's kid gets used to things like doing homework in the wings, watching Hamlet's apparition or algebra. No competition. Dress up, hide and seek, charade. Wasn't that what actors played? Nights asleep in green room chairs waiting for the folks upstairs. The smells of powder, cream and stain. Spirit gum, my Madeleine. Some dads brought work home to the den, settled in with notes and pen. Mine paced and shouted, came unglued. Now daddy's working, don't intrude. When we had parties, barbecues, the guests arrived to share the news of backstage stunts and diva tricks. Same old office politics. And as the wine flowed, if by chance someone would sing, another dance, I doubted if the lawyer's son had evenings that were half as fun. Ultimately, talk would bend to when the present job would end to how these players we enjoyed would swell the ranks of unemployed. Security a world apart for those who traffic in this art. To be an actor, choice of few. Apparently it chooses you. But what adventures he to say with every script that came his way. From hired gun to Arab sheik, an oracle for heaven's sake, he schemed, he fenced, and in due course, unkindest cut, He rode a horse. He seldom got the girl a lack unless he tied her to the track. His villains never lost their cool. 
They don't teach that in acting school. Not all Shakespeare, let's be honest, you got to pay the orthodontist. Judges, gypsies, Vulcans, hoods, to every role he brought the goods, that face, that voice, they played their part, supporting actors to his heart. We celebrate the lives he lived with thanks, with love, this actor's kid. <laughs>